Hi, I'm Ryan Levy. Welcome to Cyberism's Malicious Life. On March 18, 2013, Stophouse, a loose coalition of bulletproof hosting services and various dark web criminal kingpins, announced Operation Stophouse. The operation's target was the Spam House Project, an international organization dedicated to protecting the public from email spam, web scams, and similar threats. The impetus for the operation was Spam House's decision to add Cyberbunker, a bulletproof web hosting outfit operating from a nuclear-era subterranean bunker in the Netherlands, to its lists of spam sources. These lists are used by numerous ISPs all over the world to block such spam before even reaching their customers. Spamhouse has a well-deserved reputation for standing bravely against some of the most dangerous dregs of the internet back alleys. But Cyberbunker was not your ordinary run-of-the-mill bulletproof hosting company either. Most bulletproof hosters choose to establish their base of operation in countries where law enforcement is lax, such as Russia or African countries, as far away from the long arm of Western law agencies as possible. But not Cyberbunker. Its founders, Dutchman Hermann Johan Zent and Sven Olaf Kemphaus, held deep anti-authoritarian views and in the mid-1990s decided to test the resolve of the Dutch authorities to the limit by operating a bulletproof web hosting data center outside of a peaceful Dutch town in the south of the country inside an old NATO Cold War nuclear bunker. Unfortunately for them, a fire that broke out inside the bunker drew the authorities' attention to their operation, and later decisions, such as their willingness to host the high-profile but also hotly disputed Pirate Bay BitTorrent tracker, brought them even more to the public eye. Ultimately, Spamhouse decided to take action against the rogue hosting service, first cutting them off from their bandwidth providers, and then adding Cyberbunker itself to its blacklists. Sven, Zent, and their friends in the underworld rallied against Spamhouse. The Stophouse Coalition issued a public statement calling the Spamhouse Project an offshore criminal network of tax-circumventing self-declared internet terrorists pretending to be spam fighters and demanding that Spamhouse seize its blacklisting activity and, quote, compensate each and every one ever listed for damages regarding the man-hours and financial resources spent, end quote. The ever-resourceful Brian Krebs got his hands on a series of Skype and IRC chats between Stophouse's members, including Sven Kemphaus, whose content clearly shows them planning the attack, with most of the actual work delegated to a mysterious hacker who went by the name Narco. And indeed, a day later, on March 19th, Spamhouse became the target of a large DDoS attack that knocked its website and mail servers offline. Krebs' chat log recorded the celebration at Stophouse, with Sven proudly announcing, quote, 
Roxo, one of Spam House's blacklists, no longer exists. Ha ha. End quote. And other members cheering, hell yeah, and hit them hard. A few hours after the attack began, realizing that they cannot handle it by themselves, a Spam House admin contacted Cloudflare, a company specializing in DDoS mitigation, asking for their help. Cloudflare agreed and went into action. Matthew Prince, its founder and CEO, recalled the events in a blog post. Quote, Spamhouse signed up for Cloudflare on Tuesday afternoon, and we immediately mitigated the attack, making the site once again reachable. Once on our network, we also began recording data about the attack. At first, the attack was relatively modest, around 10 gigabits per second. There was a brief spike around 1630 UTC, likely a test that lasted approximately 10 minutes. Then, around 2130 UTC, the attackers let loose a very large wave. End quote. Cloudflare's strategy to overcome the DDoS attack was called Anycast. It duplicated Spamhouse's data and hosted it on 23 different data centers geographically spread all around the world. Since internet traffic usually takes the shortest physical path from source to destination, this meant that the torrent of data that flooded Spamhouse's servers emanating from various distributed sources was now effectively divided between 23 different destinations. As Prince explained, quote, When there's an attack, Anycast serves to effectively dilute it by spreading it across our facilities. Since every data center announced the same IP address for any Cloudflare customer, traffic cannot be concentrated in any one location. Instead of the attack being many-to-one, it becomes many-to-many, with no single point on the network acting as a bottleneck. End quote. Narco, the hacker who led the DDoS attack against Spamhouse, stepped up his efforts. On March 19, he blasted Cloudflare with 90 gigabits per second, and three days later, 120 gigabits per second of data. It was a huge DDoS attack, way above what Cloudflare was used to handling on a daily basis, but its grizzled engineers were already experienced with attacks of such scale, and Cloudflare and Spamhouse remained online. I don't understand this, wrote Narco in the group chat. How can Cloudflare take 100 gigabits per second of UDP and latency is not even increased by one millisecond? I took down Sprint. I took down Level 3. I took down Cognate. But Cloudflare? Nothing. Back in 2009, Cloudflare went down with 10 gigabits per second. End quote. Narco then decided to take things to the next level. He exploited a known weakness in some DNS servers to forge what's known as a DNS amplification attack. Simply put, when a DNS server receives a request containing a domain name, such as malicious.life, for example, it returns a response with the IP address of the requested URL. Narco made clever use of that fact. He spoofed the origin address of the requests he made to the DNS servers 
directing the responses not to the real computers sending the requests, but to Cloudflare's servers. Crucially, a DNS response can be much, much larger than the request. A 36 bytes long request, for example, can generate a 3000 bytes long response, i.e. a response amplified by a factor of almost 100. This meant that by generating a meager stream of requests of only 2.5 megabytes per second per DNS server, Narco was able to manipulate thousands of DNS servers to have them send some 300 gigabits per second of internet traffic to Cloudflare servers, the largest DDoS attack ever recorded up until then. This gargantuan stream of information finally overwhelmed Cloudflare's servers and it briefly went offline. However, it was not only Cloudflare itself that was affected by the attack, but also the companies from which it buys bandwidth from, companies known as Tier 2 internet providers. But even they could not handle that much information, and so the problem began to spill over to their providers, the Tier 1 bandwidth providers. Tier 1 providers are the entities that form the actual backbone of the internet the 15 or so organizations that join all the Tier 2 providers together and thus makes the Internet a single global network. This also means that there isn't anywhere else for the flood of information gushing through the cables to go to. When a Tier 1 provider gets swamped by a DDoS attack, it just fails and Internet connectivity fails with it. Cloudflare's Matthew Prince called it the attack that almost broke the internet. Quote, Over the last few days, as these attacks have increased, we've seen congestion across several major tier ones, primarily in Europe, where most of the attacks were concentrated, that would have affected hundreds of millions of people, even as they surfed sites unrelated to Spamhouse or Cloudflare. If the internet felt a bit more sluggish for you over the last few days in Europe, this may be part of the reason why." End quote. Later reports, such as an investigation by Gizmodo, claimed that the effects of the DDoS attack were not as severe as Cloudflare described, and that the Tier 1 providers were more than capable of handling that amount of data. It's hard to know for sure. Due to the Internet's distributed nature, different networks can see very different traffic conditions. Nevertheless, the elated Sven took to Facebook to brag to his followers. Quote, My 3,850 Facebook friends. Spamhouse.org still down, and that criminal bunch of self-declared Internet dictators will still remain down until our demands are met. Over 48 hours already resolving your shit. End of the line, buddy. Should have called and paid for the damages. End quote. It seems that these brazen boasts on Sven's own personal Facebook profile impressed Narco, who wrote to Sven in their group chat. Quote, You have very big balls. Writing DDoS threats on Facebook? 
I would not even do that, and I am the person doing the attacks, lol. End quote. However, Narco became less impressed when, a few hours later, Spamhouse managed to trace the attack back to his own personal network and retaliated by blacklisting his IP address's range. Quote, Spamhouse blacklisted my site and my host will terminate me unless Spamhouse tells them that it's okay. Fucking internet police. End quote. Narco became even more worried when one of his buddies at Stophouse, wishing to brag about the successful attack, posted a screenshot of their chat on a public forum with Narco's Skype handle visible in it. Quote, Who posted the screenshot on the forum? Please remove it. It has written my Skype name. FBI in USA already has a case on me DDoSing before. They were going to people in America and asking them questions about me. End quote. Narco's concern might be the reason why, after about a week of constant bombardment, Stophouse called off the DDoS attack on Spamhouse. And Narco was right to be worried. Less than a month later, the UK's National Crime Agency, the NCA, was able to use that Skype handle to track down Narco's real-world location and arrested him in his London home. Narco, it turns out, was a 16-year-old kid named Sean Nolan McDonough. He was probably hired by the Stophouse Coalition, and it was this unusual flow of money to the teenager's bank account that initially drew the UK authorities' attention. According to Brian Krebs, when police officers raided McDonough's home, they found his computer still logged on to various cybercrime forums. McDonough was later convicted, but avoided jail time due to his young age and his cooperation with the authorities. Sven Kemphaus, meanwhile, was also on the run. His involvement in the attack was undeniable, mainly due to his very public posts, such as this one on Facebook. Quote, Yo, Anons, we could use a little help in shutting down illegal slander and blackmail censorship project Spamhouse.org, which thinks it can dictate its views on what should and should not be on the internet. End quote. It's possible that Sven truly believed that his status as a self-proclaimed official representative of the Republic of Cyberbunker will really provide him with diplomatic immunity. If not, it's difficult to explain why, when he rented an apartment in a small Spanish village outside of Barcelona, he had his true name written on the mailbox and parked his van packed full with electronic equipment and bristling with suspicious-looking antennae right outside the sad home. Even the Spanish police officer who arrested him was baffled by Sven's behavior. Quote, He claimed he had diplomatic status. He said he was the telecommunications minister and foreign minister of a place called the Cyberbunker Republic. He didn't seem to be joking. End quote. Sven was extradited to the Netherlands, where he stood trial for his role in the DDoS attack against Spamhouse. Amazingly, he was sentenced to only 240 days in prison, and even that puny sentence was suspended, so that Sven never spent even a day in a Dutch prison.
As expected, the huge DDoS attack and the subsequent arrests brought with it a renewed surge of media attention towards Cyberbunker. Reporters rushed to the Klodinger bunker, hoping to learn more about the mysterious company. But when they got to the bunker, they were surprised to learn that Cyberbunker was no longer there. In fact, it wasn't there for quite a while, a few years at minimum. It turns out that in spite of Johann Zent's bravado and tales of humiliated firemen and SWAT teams, Klodinger's city council's efforts to banish the bulletproof host from the town were in fact successful, and Cyberbunker decided to relocate its servers to a different location. This meant that, somewhat unsurprisingly, for a few years at least, Cyberbunker was scamming its own clients, telling them that their information was stored in an ultra-secure bunker, when in reality it was kept in a standard office space in Amsterdam. Perhaps because of the unflattering media attention, Zent decided in 2013 to buy yet another bunker for his hosting company, this time in a German town called Traben-Traubach. That bunker, built by the West German military in the 1970s, originally housed a meteorological institute that employed some 400 people, half of whom lived in the small adjacent town. When the German military decided to relocate the institute to somewhere else in 2012, Trabentraubach suffered a major financial blow. This is why when the eccentric Dutchman showed up and promised the city's council that his company would bring 100, maybe even 200 new jobs to Trabentraubach, the city's officials approved of the purchase, even though they were well aware of Zent's troubled past. And so Cyberbunker once again started hosting all sorts of dubious websites and services, such as dark web marketplaces and forums for selling drugs, counterfeit money and fake identifications. The company employed several programmers and technicians to keep the servers running, unpaid interns who wished to gain practical experience, and janitors who did the cleaning and gardening. But unbeknownst to Zent, one of the janitors was actually an undercover agent. The best strategy for organizations to avoid becoming a victim of ransomware is to prevent the attack from being successful in the first place. CyberReason remains undefeated in the fight against ransomware because it moved beyond alerting to deliver an operation-centric approach that detects and prevents ransomware attacks at the earliest stages of initial ingress and lateral movement. The CyberReason predictive response capability disrupts ransomware attacks prior to data exfiltration and long before the ransomware payload can be delivered. Visit CyberReason.com to learn more about predictive ransomware protection and how your organization can realize both increased efficiency and efficacy through an operation-centric approach to security operations. 
having a bona fide Cold War nuclear bunker might have been great in terms of PR. But unfortunately for Zent, it was also extremely expensive to maintain. Apart from the cost of buying the place and maintaining its numerous rooms and halls, there were also the costs associated with running the data center itself. The electricity bill alone, for example, was about $15,000 a month. Cyberbunker wasn't making enough money to cover all those expenses, and so Zent started looking for other profitable lines of business. He came up with an interesting idea a high-security communication app that would allow its users to send stealthy encrypted messages to each other and also included a panic button that allowed them to quickly erase their data in the event of an emergency. Obviously, Zent's intended customers were the same shady characters who rented his bulletproof hosting services. But creating the app required a substantial initial investment, which Zent was unable or unwilling to make. And so he turned to a long-time acquaintance of his, a 60-years-old Irishman who went by the name of The Penguin. His real name was George Mitchell, and he acquired his nickname while working in a chocolate factory that made penguin candy bars. But don't be confused by the adorable moniker. Mitchell was a drug lord, listed by the Europol as one of the top 20 drug traffickers in Europe. He was known to be involved in smuggling heroin, cocaine and weapons into Europe, and the Irish newspapers often refer to him as the godfather of organized crime in Ireland. Zent and Mitchell entered a business partnership, and the Irish drug lord became a regular visitor to the Traben-Trarbach bunker. Although he called himself Mr. Green, his true identity quickly became known to Cyberbunker's employees, some of whom were understandably scared by the man. It appears that in 2015, one of the hosting company's young interns approached an Irish tabloid, the Sunday World, and offered it candid photos of the crime lord. Apparently, this was the first time in 20 years that someone was able to take a picture of the penguin. A few weeks later, the tabloid released an extensive front-page expose about Mitchell's new technological aspirations. It is conceivable that had Zent not partnered with Mitchell, Cyberbunker would have managed to fly under the radar of the German law authorities. But as it happens, someone in Germany read the Sunday World Exposé and became alarmed by the presence of an Irish mafia boss on their home turf. The German police sprung into action. The prosecutor had a tough challenge to crack, Hosting shady websites isn't by itself considered a crime in Germany. He would have to prove that there was actual illegal activity, such as drug trafficking, taking place in Cyberbunker's servers, and that Zent was aware of it. The police got a warrant to investigate the company, and Cyberbunker's employees were placed under surveillance. Their phones were bugged, and GPS trackers were placed on their cars. 
The data cable going into the bunker was also tapped, gathering incriminating evidence about the illegal markets and forms hosted on the servers. The Penguin's phone was bugged as well. According to a report by the New Yorker, the German investigators also brought thousands of dollars worth of bitcoins and used them to host their own fake scammy website on Cyberbunker's servers. Finally, an undercover agent infiltrated the organization posing as a janitor, a position that allowed them free access to most of the bunker's rooms, including Zent's own personal office. In September 2019, the case's prosecutor decided that he has enough evidence to warrant a raid on Cyberbunker. There was, however, one major problem. It was obvious that breaking into the fortified bunker will take a long time, time which will allow Zent to erase all the incriminating information stored on the servers. And so the German police hatched a clever plan. The undercover agent lured all the company's employees, including Zent, out of the bunker, pretending to throw a lavish dinner party at a local restaurant. The bunker itself was left empty. As evening fell on Traben Traubach, Zent and his merry band were feasting on delicious trouts and splendid wine, but unbeknownst to them, most of the restaurant's other patrons were actually plainclothes police officers. Shortly after 6 p.m., the sign was given. Police forces stormed the restaurant and arrested the dinner's attendants, while a long line of black vans carrying no less than 650 law enforcement officers approached the bunker and surrounded it. According to original police chief, quote, we were able to at all get police forces into the bunker complex, which is still secured at the highest military level. We had to overcome not only real or analog protections, we also cracked the digital protections of the data center. End quote. Johann Zent and six of his people, including two of his sons, were taken into custody and the German police seized about 200 servers as well as $41 million worth of funds allegedly tied to the various dark web markets hosted on Cyberbunker's servers. The investigators were surprised to learn just how badly Cyberbunker's clients' data was protected. Hard drives carrying incriminating data that were supposed to be destroyed were piled up inside the bunker, and the police even found an unencrypted Excel spreadsheet with all the passwords on it. The whole operation, commentated one investigator, turned out to be wholly amateurish, quite the opposite of the tough, hardcore, no-nonsense security image that Cyberbunker was projecting on its website. A police prosecutor told the German newspaper Der Spiegel that when they scoured the two petabytes of data stored on the seized hard drives, the investigators were unable to find even a single legal site. 
The information on the disks allowed the police to link Zent and some of his employees to various criminal websites and even to a denial-of-service attack on Deutsche Telekom, the German telecommunications company that impacted about one million of its customers. In December 2021, Hermann Johann Zent was sentenced to five years and nine months in a German prison. George Mitchell, the Irish drug lord, was never arrested. According to the investigators, even though he was under constant surveillance, the penguin never slipped up and never exposed any incriminating evidence against him. Thus ended the bizarre and somewhat comical story of Cyberbunker. It's possible that Zent's long prison sentence might convince him to leave the world of bulletproof web hosting behind. But it seems Sven Kamphaus hasn't learned his lesson. He still occasionally gives media interviews, taking the role of an unofficial spokesperson of the dark underworld of internet crime. I have a feeling we'll hear more from him in the future. In a way, Cyberbunker was a kind of an experiment. The question it tried to answer was, can turning a strong, almost impenetrable nuclear bunker into a data center enable a bulletproof hosting service catering to the needs of cyber criminals to operate freely in a lawful Western country? I think an Ars Technica commentator summed up the answer in a pretty marvelous way. Quote, also, a hearty laugh at someone hosting, quote-unquote, secure from law enforcement actions and operational regardless of legal demands in the most economically powerful nation on the European fucking union. Hubris and arrogance does not even begin to describe that mindset. You want to truly weather the storm? Go set up shop in some barely functional state in Africa or out in the middle of the Siberian tundra. That's it for this episode. Thank you for listening. Not much happened over the holidays, so we'll move straight to the credits. Malicious Life is produced by PI Media. This episode was written and produced by me, Ran Levy, and edited by the esteemed Nate Nelson. Our website is malicious.life, and you can follow us on Twitter at at maliciouslife or follow me at at Ran Levy. That's R-A-N-L-E-V-I. Thanks to CyberReason for underwriting the podcast. Learn more at cyberreason.com. Bye-bye. Oh my God. CK Music. Music. Music.